0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with Marxism-Leninism, a curriculum used to teach the principles of Marxism-Leninism from the ground up. Uh, Last time we were learning about matter as a concept, how it reflects the actual lived reality and how that is parsed and conceptualized. Now we move on to consciousness. 2. Consciousness. A. The source of consciousness. According to the materialist viewpoint, consciousness has natural and social sources. Annotation 67. Consciousness arises from nature and from social activities and relations. Natural refers to the material world. Without the material world of matter, material processes, and the evolution of material systems, up to and including the human brain, consciousness would never have formed. Social activities and relations also contributed to the development of consciousness. The social processes of labour and language were also prerequisites for the development of conscious activity in human beings. Natural source of consciousness. There are many factors that form the natural sources for consciousness, but the two most basic factors are human brains and the relationship between humans and the objective world, which makes possible creative and dynamic reflection. About human brains, consciousness is an attribute of a highly organized form of matter, which is the brain. Consciousness is the function and the result of the neurophysiological activities of human brains. As human brains evolved and developed over time, their neurophysiological activities became richer, and as these activities progressed, consciousness developed further and further over time. This explains why the human evolution process is also a process of developing the capacity for perception and thinking. Whenever human neurophysiological activities don't function normally because of damaged brains, our mental life is also disturbed. About the relationship between humans and the objective world which made possible creative and dynamic reflection. The relationship between humans and the objective world has been essential for as long as humans have existed. In this relationship, the objective world is reflected through human senses which interact with human brains and then form our consciousness. Figure 1. Material world plus human senses plus human brain equals consciousness. Reflection is the recreation of the features of one form of matter in a different form of matter, which occurs when they mutually impact each other through interaction. Reflection is a characteristic of all forms of matter. There are many forms and levels of reflection, such as from more simple to more complex, physical and chemical reflection, biological reflection, mental reflection, creative and dynamic reflection, etc., Annotation 68. Change is driven by mutual impacts between or within things, phenomena, and or ideas. Anytime two such subjects impact one another, traces of some form or another are left on both interacting subjects. This characteristic of change is called reflection. The concept of reflection, first proposed by Marx, Engels, and Lenin, has advanced through the work of various Soviet psychologists, philosophers, and scientists, including Ivan Pavlov, Todor Pavlov, Alexei Leontiev, Lev Vygotsky, Valentin Voloshinov, and others, and is used as a basis for scientific inquiry up to this day by mainstream researchers in Cuba, Vietnam, China, and Laos. The information provided below is somewhat simplified and generalized to give the reader a basic familiarity with the theory of reflection and the development of reflection in nature. Dialectical materialist scientists have developed a theory of the development of evolution of forms of reflection positing that forms of reflection have become increasingly complex as organic processes and life have evolved and grown more complex over time. The chart below gives an idea of how different forms of reaction have evolved over time. Figure 2, chart outlining the basic development tendency of forms of reflection in matter which lead from inorganic matter to life to human consciousness and society. Obviously, not all subjects develop competently along the path outlined above. Thus far, to our knowledge, only human beings have developed entirely to the level of consciousness and society. It is also unknown whether or how human society may develop into some future as yet unknown form. Physical and chemical reflection is the simplest form of reflection dealing with the ways in which inorganic matter is reflected in human consciousness. Physical and chemical reflection is the reflection of mechanical, physical and chemical changes and reactions of inorganic matter, i.e. changes in structures, positions, physical chemical properties and the processes of combining and dissolving substances. Physical and chemical reactions are passive. When two objects interact with each other physically or chemically, they do not do so consciously. Annotation 69. Reflection occurs anytime two material objects interact and the features of the object are transferred to each other. Below are some very simplified illustrations to relate the basic idea of the physical reflection of material objects. Figure 3. Physical reflection change in position reflection as change in position. 1. Round object moves towards square object. 2. Round object impacts square object. 3. Square object changes position. Round object bounces and reverses direction. 4. Thus, square object's change in position reflects the motion of round object and vice versa. Traces of both contradicting objects are reflected in the respective motion and position of each object. Figure 4. Physical reflection, change in structure. Reflection as change in structure. One, round object moves towards square object. Two, round object impacts square object. Three, structural changes, traces, occur in both round and square object as a result of impact. Four, these changes constitute structural physical reflection. Figure 5. Chemical reflection 1. Atom C is attached to atom B 2. Atom C detaches from atom B and transfers to atom A 3. This is a process of chemical reflection, in which both molecules mutually reflect one another after a process of chemical reaction. One molecule loses atom C, while the other gains atom C. As dialectical materialists, we must strive to develop our understanding of the reflections of physical and chemical changes and reactions so that our conceptions reflect the material world as accurately as possible. For example, we must not ascribe consciousness to physical processes. Example. A gambler who comes to believe that a pair of dice is spiteful or cursed is attributing conscious motivation to unconscious physical processes, which is an inaccurate ideological reflection of reality. Biological reflection is a higher, more complex form of reflection compared to physical reflection. It deals with reflection of organic material in the natural world, as our observations of biological processes have become more sophisticated and complex through developments in natural science, the development of better tools for observations such as microscopes and other technologies, and so on. Our conscious reflections of the natural world have also become more complex. Biological reflection is expressed through excitation, induction, and reflexes. Excitation is the reaction of simple plant and animal life forms, which occurs when they change position or structure as a direct result of physical changes to their habitat, i.e. a plant which moves toward the sun throughout the day. Induction is the reaction of animals with simple nerve systems which can sense or feel their environments, induction occurs throughout unconditioned reflex mechanisms. Annotation 70 Unconditioned reflexes are characterized by permanent connections between sensory perceptions and reactions. Such reactions are not learned, but simply occur automatically based on physiological mechanisms occurring within the organism. An example of an unconditioned reflex response would be muscles in the leg twitching at the response of a tap on the knee. Such responses are purely physiological and are never learned, conditioned into us. These reactions are simply induced physiologically. Mental reflections are reactions which occur in animals with central nervous systems. Mental reflections occur through conditioned reflex mechanisms. Annotation 71 Conditioned reflexes are reactions which are learned by organisms. These responses are acquired as animals learn to associate previously unrelated neural stimuli to elicit a particular reaction. The Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov famously developed our understanding of conditioned responses by ringing a dinner bell shortly before giving dogs food. After a few repetitions, dogs would begin to salivate upon hearing the dinner bell being rung, even before any food was offered. Any dog which did not receive this conditioning would not salivate upon hearing a dinner bell. This is what makes it a learned conditioned response, a type of mental reflection. Dynamic and creative reflection is the most advanced form of reflection. It only occurs in matter that has the highest structural level, such as the human brain. Dynamic and creative reflection is done through the human brain's nervous, physiological activities whenever the objective world impacts human senses. This is a kind of reflection that actively selects and processes information to create new information and to understand the meaning of that information. This dynamic and creative reflection is called consciousness. Annotation 72. Remember Lenin's definition of matter from materialism and imperial criticism: quote, "Matter is a philosophical category denoting objective reality which is given to man in his sensations, and which is copied, photographed, and reflected by our sensations while existing independently of them. End quote. An intrinsic property of matter is that it can be sensed by human beings and through this sensation, reflected in human consciousness. Thus, all forms of matter share the characteristic of being able to be reflected in the human mind. Criticizing Carl Pearson, who said that it was not logical to maintain that all matter had the property of being conscious, Lenin wrote in brackets, Quote, But it is logical to suppose that all matter possesses a property which is essentially kindred to sensation, the property to reflect." Understanding the concept of dynamic and creative reflection is critical to understanding the role of consciousness and the ideal in dialectical materialism. In particular, reflection differentiates dialectical materialism from the idealist form of dialectics used by Hegel. See Annotation 9. As Marx famously wrote in Capital, Volume 1, quote, My dialectic method is not only different from the Hegelian, but is its direct opposite. To Hegel, the life process of the human brain, i.e. the process of thinking, which, under the name of the idea, he even transforms into an independent subject, is the demiurgos Craftsman, artisan, creator, of the real world, and the real world is only the external, phenomenal form of the idea. With me, on the contrary, the ideal is nothing else than the material world reflected by the human mind and translated into forms of thought. End quote. In other words, Hegelian idealism saw human consciousness as defining the material world. Dialectical materialism inverts this relationship to recognize that what we conceive in our minds is only a reflection of the material world. As Marx explains in The German Ideology, all conscious thought stems from life processes through reflection. Quote, Consciousness can never be anything else than conscious existence, and the existence of men is their actual life process. If in all ideology men and their circumstances appear upside down as if in a camera obscura, this phenomenon arises just as much from their historical life process as the inversion of objects on the retina does from their physical life process. Marx and Engels argued that consciousness arose from the life processes of human beings. Life processes are processes of motion and change, which occur within organisms to sustain life, and these processes have a dialectical relationship with consciousness. The processes of life, therefore, reflect consciousness. Just as consciousness reflects human life processes, conscious activities, such as being able to hunt, gather, and cook food, build shelter, and so on, improve the life processes of human beings, by improving our health, extending our lifespans, etc. And as our life processes improved, our consciousness was able to develop more fully. As a concrete example of the dialectic between life processes and consciousness, it is now widely believed by scientists that the advent of cooking and preparing food improved the functioning of the human brain. Footnote 14 A Life Process which in turn developed human consciousness, and so on. Life processes thus determine how consciousness reflects reality, while consciousness impacts back on life processes reflecting the dialectical relationship between matter and consciousness see relationship between matter and consciousness and between practical activities and consciousness see annotation 230. Because consciousness arose from life processes of human beings in the material world, we know that the material world is reflected in our consciousness. However, these reflections do not determine the material world and do not mirror the material world exactly. See Annotation 77. It is also important to understand that Since life processes in the material world predate and determine consciousness, consciousness can never be a first basis of seeking truth about our world. As Marx further explains in The German Ideology, Since the young Hegelians consider conceptions, thoughts, ideas, in fact, all the products of consciousness to which they attribute an independent existence, as the real chains of men, just as the old Hegelians declared them the true bonds of human society, it is evident that the young Hegelians have to fight only against these illusions of consciousness, since, according to their fantasy, the relationships of men, all their doings, their chains, and their limitations are products of their consciousness. The young Hegelians logically put to men the moral postulate of exchanging their present consciousness for a human, critical, or egoistic consciousness, and thus of removing their limitations. This demand to change consciousness amounts to a demand to interpret reality in another way, i.e. to recognize it by means of another interpretation." End quote. In other words, Hegelian idealism makes the critical mistake of believing that the ideal, consciousness, is the first basis of reality, and that anything and everything can be achieved through mere conscious activity. Marx, on the other hand, argues that life is not determined by consciousness, but consciousness by life, and that we must understand the ways in which reality is reflected in consciousness before we can hope and to effect change in the material conditions of human beings. In direct contrast to German philosophy which descends from heaven to earth, here, in the materialist perspective, we ascend from earth to heaven. That is to say, we do not set out from what men say, imagine, conceive, nor from men as narrated, thought of, imagined, conceived, in order to arrive at men in the flesh we set out from real, active men, and on the basis of their real life process, we demonstrate the development of the ideological reflexes and echoes of this life process. The phantoms formed in the human brain are also, necessarily, sublimates of their material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. Morality, religion, metaphysics, All the rest of ideology and their corresponding forms of consciousness thus no longer retain the semblance of independence, they have no history, no development. But men, developing their material production and their material intercourse, alter, along with this, their real existence, their thinking, and the products of their thinking. Life is not determined by consciousness, but consciousness by life. In the first method of approach, the starting point is consciousness taken as the living individual. In the second method, which conforms to real life, it is the real living individuals themselves, and consciousness is considered solely as their consciousness. So the work of the dialectical materialist is not to try to develop utopian conceptions of reality first, to then proceed to try and force such purely ideal conceptions onto reality. See Annotation 17. Rather, we must understand the material basis of reality, as well as the material processes of change and motion which govern reality, and only then can we search for ways in which human beings can influence material reality through conscious activity. As Marx explains, the revolutionary must not be fooled into believing we can simply conceive of an ideal world and then replicate it into reality through interpretation and conscious thought alone. Instead, we must start with a firm understanding of material conditions and, from that material basis, determine how to build our revolutionary movement through conscious impact of material relations and processes of development in the material world. As Marx wrote in The German Ideology, communism is for us not a state of affairs which is to be established, an ideal to which reality will have to adjust itself. We call communism the real movement which abolishes the present state of things. The conditions of this movement result from the premises now in existence. This distinction may seem subtle at first, but it has massive implications for how Marx suggests we go about participating in revolutionary activity. For Marx, purely idealist debates and criticisms are an unproductive waste of time. The young Hegelian ideologists, in spite of their allegedly world-shattering statements, are the staunchest conservatives. The most recent of them have found the correct expression for their activity when they declare they are only fighting against phrases, and that they are in no way combating the real existing world when they are merely combating the phrases of this world. The only results which this philosophical criticism could achieve were a few, And at that, thoroughly one sided, elucidations of Christianity from the point of view of religious history. All the rest of their assertions are only further embellishments of their claim to have furnished, in these unimportant elucidations, discoveries of universal importance. Marx also discusses the uselessness of idealist conjecture. Moreover, it is quite immaterial what consciousness starts to do on its own, Out of all such muck we get only the one inference that these three moments, the forces of production, the state of society, and consciousness, can and must come into contradiction with one another. Because the division of labour implies the possibility, nay, the fact, that intellectual and material activity Enjoyment and labor, production and consumption devolve on different individuals, and that the only possibility of their not coming into contradiction lies in the negation, in its turn, of the division of labor. It is self-evident, moreover, that specters, bonds, the higher being, concept, scruple, terms for idealist conceptions, are merely the idealistic spiritual expression, the conception apparently of the isolated individual, the image of very empirical fetters and limitations within which the mode of production of life and the form of intercourse coupled with it move." Quote. What Marx means by this is that we should focus on the material processes and conditions of society if we intend to change society because idealist speculation, conjecture, critique, and thought alone, at the individual level, will never be capable of affecting revolutionary change in our material world. Instead, we must focus on the material basis of reality, the material conditions of society, and seek revolutionary measures which are built upon materialist foundations." Only by understanding material processes of development, as well as the dialectical relationship between consciousness and matter, can we reliably and effectively begin to impact reality through conscious activity. This begins with the recognition that conscious thought itself is a reflection of material reality which developed and results from life processes of material motion and processes of change within the human brain, this concept of reflection, pioneered by Marx and Engels, was significantly developed by V.I. Lenin in his response to Machian positivists, who posited that what we perceive is not truly reality. See annotation thirty-two. In his philosophical notebooks, Lenin wrote, quote, "Life gives rise to the brain." Nature is reflected in the human brain. In Materialism and Imperial Criticism, Lenin further defined the relationship between matter and consciousness through reflection. Lenin's Proof of the Theory of Reflection. In Materialism and Imperial Criticism, Lenin offered the following arguments to back up the theory of reflection. 1 things exist independently of our consciousness, independently of our perceptions, outside of us. For it is beyond doubt that alizarin, a chemical substance which was newly discovered at time of writing, existed in coal tar yesterday, and it is equally beyond doubt that yesterday we knew nothing of the existence of this alizarin and received no sensations from it. End quote. Lenin is saying that the material world must exist outside of and independent from our consciousness. He cites as evidence the discovery of a chemical substance, which until recently we had no sensory perception of, noting that this substance must have existed long before we became aware of it through sensory observation. Quote, 2. There is definitely no difference in principle between the phenomenon and the thing in itself. And there could be no such difference. The only difference is between what is known and what is not yet known, and philosophical inventions of specific boundaries between the one and the other, inventions to the effect that the thing in itself is beyond phenomena Kant, or that we can or must fence ourselves off by some philosophical partition from the problem of a world which in one part or another is still unknown, but which exists outside us, Hume. All this is the sheerest nonsense, unfounded belief, trick, invention." End quote. Lenin is referencing a centuries-old debate about whether or not human beings are capable of having real knowledge of a thing in itself, or if we can only perceive phenomena of things. Characteristics observable to our senses. The thing in itself refers to the actual material object which exists outside of our consciousness. So the thing being posed is can we really have knowledge of material objects outside of our consciousness? Or does consciousness itself act as a barrier to ever really knowing anything about material objects and the material world outside of our consciousness? Immanuel Kant argued that we can never know the true nature of the material world, writing, quote, We indeed, rightly considering objects of sense as mere appearances, confess thereby that they are based upon a thing in itself, though we know not this thing as it is in itself, but only know its appearances, the way our senses are affected by this unknown something. End quote. This idea that the senses could not be trusted to deliver accurate knowledge, and thus the thing in itself is essentially unknowable, was carried forward by later empiricists such as Bacon and Hume. See Annotation 10. In Ludwig Feuerbach and the End of Classical German Philosophy, Marx and Engels refute this notion, arguing that practice allows us to discover truth about things in themselves quote, the most telling refutation of this as of all other philosophical crochets in practice, namely experiment and industry. If we are able to prove the correctness of our conception of a natural process by making it ourselves, bringing it into being out of its conditions, and making it serve our own purposes into the bargain, then there is an end to the Kantian, ungraspable thing in itself, end quote. Lenin expanded on this argument, explaining that the phenomena of objects which we observe with our senses do accurately reflect material objects, even though we might not know everything about these objects at once. Over time, as we learn more and more about material objects and the material world through practice and repeated observation, we more fully and accurately come to understand things in themselves, as he writes in Imperial Criticism and Materialism. Quote, 3. In the theory of knowledge, as in every other branch of science, we must think dialectically. That is, we must not regard our knowledge as ready-made and unalterable, but must determine how knowledge emerges from ignorance, how incomplete inexact knowledge becomes more complete and more exact, End quote. Here, Lenin further elaborates on the dialectical nature of knowledge. We must simultaneously accept that our knowledge is never perfect and unchanging, but we must also recognize that we are capable of making our knowledge more exact and complete over time. To further defend his ideas about reflection, Lenin cited Czech philosopher, Karl Kotsky's argument against Kant. Quote, that I see green, red, and white is grounded in my faculty of sight. But that green is something different from red testifies to something that lies outside of me, to real differences between the things. The relations and differences between the things themselves revealed to me by the individual space and time concepts are real relations and differences of the external world, not conditioned by the nature of my perceptive faculty. If this were really so, i.e., if Kant's doctrine of the ideality of time and space were true, we could know nothing about the world outside us, not even that it exists. End quote. Lenin followed from Marx and Engels that, in order to further develop our understanding and knowledge of the material world, it was necessary to engage in practice. See Annotation 211. Engels wrote in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, The proof of the pudding is in the eating. From the moment we use these objects, according to the qualities we perceive in them, we put to an infallible test the correctness or otherwise of our sense perceptions. If these perceptions have been wrong, then our estimate of the use to which an object can be turned must also be wrong, and our attempt must fail. But if we succeed in accomplishing our aim, if we find that the object does agree with our idea of it, and does answer the purpose we intended it for, then that is positive proof that our perception of it and of its qualities, so far, agree with reality outside ourselves. Notice that Engels is careful to use the words so far. Its qualities so far agree with reality outside ourselves. Engels does not argue that human understanding of the material world is infallible. Mistakes are often made. But over time, as such mistakes are discovered and our understanding improves, our knowledge of the material world develops. This is only possible if the phenomena of objects which we observe, the reflections within our consciousness, do actually and accurately represent material reality. Lenin elaborated on this necessity to constantly update and improve dialectical materialist philosophy as new information and knowledge became available. Quote, Engels, for instance, assimilated the to him new term energy. And began to employ it in 1885, preface to the second edition of Anti-During, and in 1888, Ludwig Feuerbach, but to employ it equally with the concepts of force and motion and along with them. Engels was able to enrich his materialism by adopting a new technology. End quote. Engels provided further elaborations on how practical experience and mastery of the material world refutes the notion that it is impossible to have real knowledge of the material world in Ludwig Furbach and the end of classical German philosophy. Quote, the most telling refutation of this, as of all other philosophical fancies, is practice, v. experiment and industry. If we are able to prove the correctness of our conception of a natural process by making it ourselves, bringing it into being out of its conditions and using it for our own purposes into the bargain, then there is an end of the Kantian incomprehensible or ungraspable. The chemical substances produced in the bodies of plants and animals remained just such things in themselves until organic chemistry began to produce them one after another. Whereupon the thing in itself became a thing for us, as for instance, alizarin, a dive which was originally plant-based, which we no longer trouble to grow in the field, but produce much more cheaply, and simply from coal tar. Quote. So dialectical materialism holds that there is a material world external from our consciousness, that conscious thoughts are reflections of this material world, that we can have real knowledge of the material world through sensory observation, and that our knowledge and understanding of the material world is best advanced through practice in the material world. Social sources of consciousness. There are many factors that constitute the social sources of consciousness. The most basic and direct factors are labour and language, Labor is the process by which humans interact with the natural world in order to make products for our needs of existing and developing. Labor is also the process that changes the human body's structure, i.e. muscles developing through exercise. Annotation 73. In Dialectics of Nature, Engels describes the dialectical relationship between labor and human development. Quote, labor is the source of all wealth, the political economists assert. And it really is the source, next to nature, which supplies it with the material that it converts into wealth. But it is even infinitely more than this. It is the prime basic condition for all human existence. And this to such an extent that, in a sense, we have to say that labor created man himself. Before the first flint could be fashioned into a knife by human hands, a period of time probably elapsed in comparison with which the historical period known to us appears insignificant. But the decisive step had been taken. The hand had become free and could henceforth attain ever greater dexterity. The greater flexibility thus acquired was inherited and increased from generation to generation. Thus the hand is not only the organ of labour, it is also the product of labour. Only by labour, by adaptation to ever new operations, through the inheritance of muscles, ligaments, and, over longer periods of time, bones that had undergone special development and the ever renewed employment of this inherited finesse in new and more complicated operations, have given the human hand the high degree of perfection required to conjure into being the pictures of a Raphael, the statues of a Thorvaldsen, the music of a Paganini. But the hand did not exist alone, it was only one member of an integral, highly complex organism, and what benefited the hand benefited also the whole body it served labor also allows us to discover the attributes structures motion laws etc of the natural world via observable phenomena annotation 74 we discover truth about the natural world through labor through physical practice in the material world see the discussion of practice in annotation 211 All of these phenomena, through our human senses, impact our human brains, and through brain activity, knowledge and consciousness of the objective world are formed and developed. Language is a system of material signals that carries information with cognitive content. Without language, consciousness could not exist and develop. The birth of language goes hand in hand with labour. From the beginning, labour was social. The relationships between people who perform labour processes require them to have means to communicate and exchange thoughts. This requirement caused language to arise and develop, along with the working processes. With language, humans not only communicate, but also summarise reality and convey experience and thoughts from generation to generation. Annotation 75, from Dialectics of Nature. it has already been noted that our simian ancestors were gregarious. It is obviously impossible to seek the derivation of man, the most social of all animals, from non-gregarious immediate ancestors. Mastery over nature began with the development of the hand, with the labor, and widened man's horizon at every new advance. He was continually discovering new, hitherto unknown, properties in natural objects, On the other hand, the development of labor necessarily helped to bring the members of society closer together by increasing cases of mutual support and joint activity, and by making clear the advantage of this joint activity to each individual. In short, men in the making arrived at the point where they had something to say to each other. Necessity created the organ. The undeveloped larynx of the ape was slowly but surely transformed by modulation to produce constantly more developed modulation, and the organs of the mouth gradually learned to pronounce one articulate sound after another. Comparison with animals proves that this explanation of the origin of language from and in the process of labor is the only correct one. The little that even the most highly developed animals need to communicate to each other does not require articulate speech. In its natural state, no animal feels handicapped by its inability to speak or to understand human speech. It is quite different when it has been tamed by man. The dog and horse, by association with man, have developed such a good ear for articulate speech that they easily learn to understand any language within their range of concept. Moreover, they have acquired the capacity for feelings such as affection for man, gratitude, etc., which were previously foreign to them. Anyone who has had much to do with such animals will hardly be able to escape the conviction that in many cases they now feel their inability to speak as a defect, although unfortunately it is one that can no longer be remedied because their vocal organs are too specialised in a definite direction. However, where vocal organs exist, within certain limits, even this inability disappears. The buccal organs of birds are as different from those of men as they can be, yet birds are the only animals that can learn to speak, and it is the bird, with the most hideous voice, the parrot, that speaks best of all. Let no one object that the parrot does not understand what it says. It is true that for the sheer pleasure of talking and associating with human beings, the parrot will chatter for hours at a stretch, continually repeating its whole vocabulary but within the limits of its range of concepts it can also learn to understand what it is saying. Teach a parrot swear words in such a way that it gets an idea of their meaning, one of the great amusements of sailors returning from the tropics, tease it and it will soon discover that it knows how to use its swear words just as correctly as a Berlin costermunker. The same is true of begging for tidbits. First labour, after it, and then with it, speech. These were the two most essential stimuli under the influence of which the brain of the ape gradually changed into that of man, which for all its similarity is far larger and more perfect. Hand inevitably accompanied by a corresponding refinement of the organ of hearing, so the development of the brain as a whole is accompanied by a refinement of hand with the development of the brain, went the development of its most immediate instruments, the senses just as the gradual development of speech is all the senses. The eagle sees much farther than man, but the human eye discerns considerably more in things than does the eye of the eagle. The dog has a far keener sense of smell than man, but it does not distinguish a hundredth part of the odors that for man are definite signs denoting different things. And the sense of touch which the ape hardly possesses in its crudest initial form, has been developed only side by side with the development of the human hand itself, through the medium of labor. So the most basic, direct, and important source that decides the birth and development of language is labor. Language appeared later than labor, but always goes with labor, Language and labor were the two main stimulations affecting the brains of the primates which evolved into humans, slowly changing their brains into human brains and transforming animal psychology into human consciousness. Figure 6. This diagram is based on work from an article titled Evidence in Hand, Recent Discoveries and the Early Evolution of the Human Manual Manipulation. Footnote 15. Modern research has discovered strong evidence, footnote 16, that the human hand evolved along with tool use, in line with Engels' analysis in Dialectics of Nature. Annotation 76. It is also worth noting that, just as human consciousness derived from labor and language and social activity, so too did society itself arise from language and labor, as Engels explained in Dialectics of Nature. Quote, The reaction on labor and speech of the development of the brain and its attendant senses, of the increasing clarity of consciousness, power of abstraction, and of conclusion, gave both labor and speech an ever-renewed impulse to further development. This development did not reach its conclusion when man finally became distinct from the ape, but on the whole made further powerful progress." its degree and direction varying among different peoples and at different times, and here and there even being interrupted by local or temporary regression. This further development has been strongly urged forward on the one hand and guided along more definite directions on the other by a new element which came into play with the appearance of fully-fledged man, namely society. End quote. In other words, these factors of human's physical nature and human society have a dialectical relationship with one another. Elements of human nature, in particular labor and language, led to the development of human society, which in turn played a key role in the development of human language and labor. Figure 7. Human language and human labor mutually develop one another through a dialectical process to develop human nature. Simultaneously, human nature and human society mutually develop one another through a dialectical process. And that is going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistgreeting at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias, you can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. This show is also hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also support the network if you go to patreon.com abnormalmapping and you could pay some money to get bonus shows there, which I highly recommend. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.